0: But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as for the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field... One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect."
1: Good morning. That is a weird passage, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, everybody. uh, I'm Larry. I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome to this first week in Advent. Um, You know, it's so interesting, that passage that Teresa just read for us, it's just such a festive passage, isn't it? I mean, nothing puts me in Christmas spirit than something that sounds a little doom and gloom, right? You might be wondering, like, we just sang a bunch of Christmas-sounding songs, and, and you might not know this, Larry, but it's now December, and I mean, look outside. It feels like Christmas, doesn't it? Which means it's probably going to be 70 and sunny on Christmas, right? <laughs> Welcome to Denver. You might be wondering, why are we starting an Advent series with a passage that looks like the end of the world? and I'm kind of wondering that question, too. Now, maybe you grew up in a tradition uh, where you followed the church calendar in your church. Anyone grow up following some kind of church calendar, some of us? Um, I did not, but a number of years ago, someone introduced it to me, and it, it, it kind of felt like going home to me. Uh, the church calendar has been around for centuries, it's not just a new thing. And this idea of following a specific text or reading a specific text on a specific feast or a specific time in the year is, is really rooted deeply in the Old Testament history. And in fact, some scholars believe that when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he unrolled the Isaiah scroll and he began to read that he was reading the appointed passage for the day. And that passage happened to be about who? Him. Yeah, right. So it's not just a logistical thing or like we don't know what to talk about. It's actually a powerful tool for formation. Uh, Because the church calendar is designed in such a way that it it immerses us into the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And it it slows us down from the chaos of life to slow down and actually journey with Jesus in a pretty intimate way. And the passage that that, uh, Teresa read today was one of four readings in what's called a lectionary. And that's just sort of like a Bible reading plan that churches use to guide their teaching as they follow the church calendar. And we don't always follow the church calendar. It's just in this season we are. But one thing that I think is neat to know is that millions of other Christians around the world are reading and wrestling with this exact same passage today. Isn't that cool? It's not just us. There's literally millions of people reading and laboring through this text. The church calendar begins with Advent. And Advent is really all about living in that space, not, not just looking toward Christmas. It's actually looking toward the return of Christ. The word literally means arrival. It's looking for the arrival. And we find ourselves sandwiched between that first arrival, the incarnation, which we'll celebrate uh, in a few weeks, but also the, the looking and the waiting for Jesus to come. And in fact, you might not know this, but Advent is the beginning of the church year. You didn't know when you came to church today that it was New Year's, did you? So I want you to look at someone near you and tell them, Happy New Year. Go ahead and wish them Happy New Year. That's going to mess with your heads this whole month. You're going, I've missed something terribly, didn't I? Uh, no. So after that, we move into Christmas in just a few short weeks where we, we honor and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. And then we move from that into the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is all about beginning to study the, the life of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And then after that, churches historically follow Lent, which is a season of reflection and repentance and groaning for the resurrection, and for 40 days, for six weeks, we labor through Lent, and then Easter, we have Good Friday, Holy Week and Good Friday, and then on Easter, it pops, because we've been repentant, and we've been listening, we've been waiting, and all of a sudden, we get to celebrate this glorious celebration of Jesus' resurrection and, and from the dead, and that thing right there is the reason why we all have hope, amen. So I I was really excited uh, about Advent. It's my favorite time of the year. I love getting back into that rhythm personally of observing the calendar. I was really, really excited until I read this verse and knew that I had to teach on it. And then I was like, I don't want to teach on this. And uh, so today we're just going to sing Kumbaya together a few times and call it a day. You know, seriously, though, one of the things I love about the lectionary is that by following someone else's script for us, we can't just pick and choose and go, I don't like that or I'm never going to talk about that, right? Sometimes we get immersed in really difficult texts. In My last church, we followed the lectionary pretty closely, and it always seemed to be, on the weeks I was preaching, I drew the weirdest, wildest, hardest text for some reason. But I like that because it forces us as a church to talk about hard things, to talk about confusing things, to talk about things that don't always make sense, that that require us to do a little bit of work. And I would definitely say this is one of those kinds of difficult texts. So to get the gist of what's going on here, we got to back up just a little bit, not just look at that 36 to 44, but we have to look at what was happening earlier in this chapter. So we see that Jesus was teaching in and around Jerusalem and around the temple, and he was walking away, and his disciples came up to him, and they pointed out the temple, and they basically said, what do you think about these buildings here? And so Jesus starts using this rather cryptic language, saying that everything that they see, the temple and the surrounding buildings and all that sort of stuff, would be turned to rubble. And then he just kind of moved on and didn't really explain it. Have you ever had someone just casually say something in a conversation and then kind of move on and you're stuck going, wait a sec, could we go back to that other thing you just said, Right? If, Jesus, if I were walking with Jesus and he was like, This building and all that you see will be destroyed. Oh, anyway, let's hit up some Chick fil A for lunch. I think I'd be like, Hold time out just for a second. What are you talking about? That's kind of what the disciples experienced. And so it bothered them and they came to him and here's what they said They said, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and, and, they, and they said this, We don't understand your predictions. Tell us when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign that you're returning? How will we know that the end of the age is upon us? So they asked him a two-pronged question. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed? And number two, what's going to be the sign that you're returning? Like, I need to know. And so verses 4 through 35 are basically Jesus explaining this is what the next era is going to look like. Here's what the next season is going to look like. Here's what you can expect, wars and all these sort of things, um, which sounds a little bit alarming. But then he gets really specific in the verses that we read today. Because the disciples had basically asked, when are you coming back? And how exactly will we know what day you're coming back? Pretty easy stuff, right? I have to be honest, this text is not... An easy one. And what's interesting is that scholars have argued for almost 2,000 years, what is this text all about? And most of us, we read this, and it, it feels like the end of the world. Who's with me? It feels like something's happening at the end, right? This is a big deal. So throughout the, the years, the church has wrestled with a number of different ways to, to view it. Some think it's metaphor. Some think it's talking about when Jesus returns to the earth um, some interpret this as a thing that uh, uh, people call the rapture, where Jesus will snap, snatch up everyone who uh, follows him out of the earth and leave everyone else behind. Sound familiar? What's interesting is that's a pretty popular theory, but it, the early church fathers didn't believe that. It didn't come around until the, the 19th century, but it's a pretty recent phenomenon. But thanks to a series of books called Left, Left Behind... There are books, and there are t-shirts, and, and youth group films, scary youth group films. <laughs> I remember when I was in youth group, there was a, there was a movie that our youth pastor showed us literally intended to scare the hell out of you, that after you watch this, you would be so terrified of hell that you would come running into the loving arms of Jesus. That's kind of what we would call in those days, turn or burn, Right? And, um, and so we watched this one video where this, this thing happened, the rapture happened, so people would just disappear. But the thing is, their clothes stuck around. But the, it's not just that. You would think if I disappeared literally right now, what would happen to all my stuff? It would just collapse to the ground. Not so. Theologically, according to this movie, what happens is your shoes are there, your watch, your keys, your wallet are all in there. Your pants are neatly folded, your shirt's neatly folded on top of it. That's what I f- took away from the movie. Like I was distracted by it. There was a scene where two painters were working and one painter was up on a ladder and the other one was working on a wall and the one working on the wall heard this noise and he turned around and the painter on the ladder was gone. But his clothes were neatly folded on the ladder. Come on. Culture has been fascinated with this approach. T-shirts have been printed, lots of books, all that sort of stuff. And we, we really shouldn't be surprised because since humanity has been on this planet, they've been curious about the end of the world. And, and so even 2,000 years ago, as Jesus says sort of this stuff, his disciples are going, whoa, 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 whoa. let's go back to that. What's it going to be like? Because people want to know what happened. And people have all these different ideas what the end of the world looks like. There's a ton of speculation. For example, there was a guy in 44 AD who um, he actually said he was the Messiah and that he was leading people into the end of the world. So he gathered up 400 followers and he took them out into the desert. And turns out he was right. It was the end of the world for him because the Roman army heard what he was up to and they went out there and they killed him and all of his followers. So yeah, it it was the end of the world for him. There's a guy, um, you might know this picture. His name is Harold Camping. Um, he was a, owned a radio, had a radio show and predicted that Jesus was going to come back on a really specific date. He had done all this research and these charts and all this sort of stuff and determined exactly when Jesus was going to come back. Um, spoiler alert, Jesus did not come back on the day he said he was going to come back. Okay. Now, he got back on the radio. You, you could see being kind of embarrassed. So he gets on the radio and says, Sorry, I made a miscalculation. Uh, I was off by seven months, and you need to donate to my ministry. Hmm, interesting. Well, guess what? Jesus did not come back seven months later. And I think what happened is he should have taken the money that people were donating and bought a better calculator. Because clearly, his calculator was wrong. What's crazy is that guys like that will will put dates. There's a book, you can still buy this on Amazon, called 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. You'd think it'd be worth a nickel. It's like 30 or 40 bucks. People still follow this stuff. Back in 2012, uh, some researchers found that the Mayan calendar ran out in December of 2012. You guys remember this? It was all over the news. It was like bigger than Y2K. Huge, huge deal. And um, the calendar ended at a certain date in 2012, so people thought, well, it must mean it's the end of time. And I wonder, like, what if they just ran out of paper or stone or what if they got bored or hungry, and then they forgot? You know, like you start a project and you lose interest in it. And then thousands of years later, people are going, oh, I'm reading this little, you know, i was deciphering this thing, and oh, the end of the world's going to happen. Oh, I don't think so. And then there are all these modern-day prophets who try to paint a really compelling picture of what the end of the world looks like, like the prophets Rogan and Franco. Very clear picture of what the end of the world looks like. You might be thinking to yourself, you're stalling as long as you can about talking about this passage. (laughs) And maybe we'll forget. And you might be right about that. Here's the thing. Well-meaning people who love Jesus have spent lots of time looking at passages like this, trying to figure out what the end looks like. And they, they, they want to be ready. They make all kinds of flow charts and spreadsheets, and they write books and all that kind of stuff. But we go back to this passage, and we find ourselves here in Littleton, Colorado, 2,000 years later, faced with the task of looking at a difficult text like this and asking, well, what in the world does this text mean? And why in the world is he teaching this way? And what in the world does it mean for us as a church trying to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus today? but I think we can actually go back to the original question, what the disciples were asking, so you can see what was in their mind as they asked these questions. The disciples, they said, we don't understand your predictions. Tell us, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign that you are returning? How will we know that the end of the age is upon us? And as you can imagine... With Jesus kind of giving the response that he did, they were pretty unnerved by what he said. And they're saying, We we don't understand what you're saying, and and we want to know what's going to happen someday, and we don't know what it's going to look like, and what you're going to be wearing when it happens, and like what, you know, all this sort of stuff. That's really not too different from us, is it? We like to have things figured out. Who's with me? I like to know what's next. Sometimes in the car, um, pre GPS days, Uh, my wife would have a map and I'm driving and she would tell me the next turn. Like, you know, in 4.7 miles, you're gonna turn to the, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the like next five things after that? I wanna know kind of a roadmap of where we're going. Have you ever sat with someone who's freaking out or having a meltdown about the future? Like, I don't know when I'm gonna go to college or I'm gonna know what I'm gonna do about this or, oh, where are we gonna go for for Christmas or Thanksgiving? And they're just like on and on. They're really manic and hyper. Do you ever just wanna put your hand up and just say, stop and breathe for just a moment, my friend? Maybe your kids have done this to you. Just stop. Face palm. This is kind of what Jesus is doing here. See, Jesus patiently listened to them. And then he gave three word pictures to sort of describe, okay, I'll tell you what it's going to be like at the end of the age. And he uses a handful of word pictures like days of Noah. People are going to be eating and drinking, carrying on all this sort of stuff. Two women—they're—they're making meal. They're—they're at a mill. They're making cornmeal or whatever it might be, uh, and or flour or whatever it might be. And then one disappears. Uh, The two men uh, are walking up a hill or painting, and one disappears, and his clothes are left neatly folded. That's—that's kind of what he's saying. And notice that Jesus uh, isn't—if you think about it, like we think like rapture. Okay, we're this is Jesus snatching us out, but a flood is bad. You ever thought about that? When you read this passage, Noah, in the days of Noah, and then the flood came and took them away. So if we're going to use that metaphor, it doesn't really make sense because the flood is bad. The people that are taken away, it's kind of confusing. Jesus is basically trying to say to us, you'll be doing ordinary, everyday, average things. And when you do those things, you should live with an awareness of me. You should be watching vigilantly for me. And it sounds scary. It's a lot to figure out. And we try to figure it out and get so focused on, on how it's going to happen. Like, well, what kind of cloud is it that Jesus is going to be riding when he comes back down? Or is this literal? Or is he wearing a robe or a snuggie? Or like, what is, what's happening when Jesus comes back? Are we digging into the nuance of the Greek words to try to get our calculator out and figure out when it's supposed to be so we can just figure out everything that's supposed to happen in the future so we can feel better? But I think the answer to unpacking this passage is pretty simple, really. Jesus says something to his disciples that I think really... Is relevant to us today. He basically says, don't worry about when I'm coming back or exactly how I'll do it. It's going to be exactly like just you're going through your ordinary stuff. See, Jesus was aware that we as humans get OCD trying to figure stuff out and think through every little detail and and think so far in the future, we miss what's happening today. And so Jesus squashes all of that in verse 36. What does he say? No one knows what? The day nor the hour. I have a friend of mine uh, who was doing some uh, consulting, and we had an architect last year come up, and his name is Jesus. And when you type Jesus, it looks like Jesus. And so my friend said to me, he texted me, he said, Jesus will be there on Thursday. And I said, hey, no man knows the day nor the hour when Jesus is coming. So I've prayed a lot about this passage, I've studied it, I've consulted, I have really good Greek New Testament commentary, I have four years of seminary, two master's degrees, and I've done the hard work of exegeting this text for you. Are you ready? Get your pens out. Got it, thank you, Linda. Get your paper. I'm going to give you the key to what Jesus is saying. Here's what he says. Something will happen someday. I'll say it again in case you missed it. (laughs) Write it down. Something will happen someday. I can't wait to hear your lunchtime conversations about this. This It's so good. Here's the thing. That's not really what this text is about. Jesus is basically saying you're missing the whole point. You're so focused on this future thing or being so busy in this other stuff uh, that you're missing being awake and alert and ready to embrace the kingdom that is breaking forth right now. Now that is extremely relevant to where we are today, isn't it? I mean, today is December 1st, and I don't know about you, but for me, December is a frenetic, crazy month. It's supposed to be this sweet, like, oh, looking for dear little baby Jesus in the manger at the end of the month, but it's busy. There are parties and shopping and trying to figure out where to go and what to do and who to see and, and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times by the time I get to Christmas, I'm pretty tired. And I've been so busy doing stuff, and plowing and just engaging in all these other things, that I really have missed the beauty of what was right in front of me as I was going about my daily, ordinary life who's with me. Things like enjoying spending time with my wife and my kids, or thinking about things other than me, me, me. Or as a pastor, I'm teaching a lot this month, and one of the things I'm afraid of is what if I get to the end of this month And I I talked a lot about Jesus, but I didn't really spend time with Jesus. Do you feel me? See, this has a lot more to do not about the future and what it's going to look like and will there be a rapture or not be a rapture. What it has to do with is how we live our lives right now. Awaiting the advent, it has a lot more to do with that than what will happen someday. And Jesus wasn't saying, hey, listen, nerds, unite. I'm giving you homework, make a spreadsheet, go figure it out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, be a light in this season. When darkness is trying to push the light back, he's saying you are the light of the world. Be the light as you go about your ordinary average life. He's saying it's so easy to be focused on stuff and things and figuring things out and busyness and hurriedness and what's going to happen five years from now and 2,000 years from now and do all those things and miss the opportunity to be watchful and awake right now. See, Advent is about sitting in the tension of waiting for when he returns to make right all the wrongs the enemy and the forces of darkness have made wrong. And so going about our business, it's about going our, about our business with an increasing awareness of his presence in just the ordinary, the everyday activities of our lives. When we sit down to have a meal, when we sit down to do work, when we watch TV, when we read, when we're driving, when we're stuck in line at the DMV, Jesus is with us in all of those moments. And He wants us to wake up, listen, and experience life right now, filled with hope, Not filled with dread about this thing that's going to happen someday, but filled with hope. To work and to play and to live and to be married and to eat and drink and sleep, amen. All those sorts of things. But to do all of the things that we're doing with an awareness of him. With a watchful eye toward the sacred. That really, everything is sacred. And to to move beyond that as we experience that unhurried pace of life this month. As we experience the joy that comes from knowing God's got this, as we experience the, the peace that can only come from Christ, that we could show an unbelieving, frenetic, anxious world what hope in Jesus and the peace of Christ look like. And what's really interesting is that this is where the church finds herself in this season of Advent, It's really fascinating because the 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 Swiss theologian Karl Barth. Here's what he said. He said, "What other time or season can or will the church ever have, but that of Advent?" He he called it the the time in between. Basically, we're we're stuck in Advent. We're waiting. We're still longing. We're still groaning for the return of Christ. That's what Advent's about. It's not just buying presents for people and looking forward to seeing Christmas carols. It's the awareness of the presence of Christ now and the longing for the incarnational presence of Christ when he comes again. It's really interesting. The the culture that we live in, I don't know if you've noticed this, but fear is a moneymaker in our culture. Fear is kind of a big deal. Have you noticed sort of a culture of fear in the United States? People use it to sell things. They use it to rally you to their political persuasion on either side of the aisle. They use it to force you to move into some things. And that's where the rapture movies I watched in high school, uh, that's what the attempt was to do. But that didn't produce a lasting fruit in me. Fear doesn't do that. Because as we follow with Jesus, we have peace. And Jesus invites us in Advent to live counterculturally, not with fear not with hurriedness, not with, um, not with craziness, but about going in our way as we're going and embracing this season with peace and joy and hope and extending that hope to others who so desperately need it. But if you're honest, and I'll be honest for most of us this season, it's not like that at all. There was a poll by the American Psychological Association, um, and it showed that up to 69% of people had uh, stressed by the feeling of lack of time in this month. Another 69% of people were stressed by perceived lack of money, and 51% of people were stressed by the pressure to give or to get gifts. And that leads to symptoms. Uh, like this, like headaches and sleep disturbances and fatigue and exhaustion and difficulty concentrating and short temper, upset stomach, low job satisfaction and morale, aching muscles including lower back pain, loss of appetite, changes in behavior while at work and a decline in productivity and work performance. That's what a lot of people said they experienced this time of year. I, I don't think that's what Advent is supposed to be about. I also realistically know that December can be a pretty tough time for a lot of people. There are people in this room right now and in the last service and people that listen to this podcast that this is your first Christmas without someone that you love dearly who passed away. This might be a Christmas where you lost your job and you struggle to provide for your kids. These gifts that are right here is an expression of the generosity and the joy of this church community. And the reason why we do this is because there are people in our very own city who come through our doors every Saturday morning who can't afford basic food. And so we help take care of them through our our food bank. But then one thing that we realized was at Christmas time, they're really struggling to do anything for their kids. And so because you guys love people so much, because you're so great at living out the gospel, you're so great at living in that tension well, You've brought hundreds of things for people. Over 100 people have signed up to come be a part of this. And because of your generosity, we get to stand in the gap there and help them give their kids a really good Christmas. But there are a lot of people that they're not coming to the gift mark kind of thing. They're struggling this season. I think for all of us, not just in December, but in life, things are tough sometimes and we find ourselves groaning and longing for Jesus to come back and make what is broken whole again. Are you with me? That's what Advent is all about. You see, it's about being awake to the fact that all that stuff's happening and there may be fear and there may be hardship or we may just have our heads in the clouds just waiting for some day, hold up in a cave just waiting for Jesus to return and withdrawn from life. But Advent is about being awake to what God is up to right now as we longingly wait for him to come and do that thing that he said he would do. And so the bottom line of this passage is this, something will happen someday, but Jesus wants to meet us right now in this season. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are four readings, and I want to look at two of those readings because they're, they're designed to work together. And I want to look at Romans chapter 13 together for just a moment, sort of to help Even expand our idea of what Advent looks like and what this passage means. Verse 11, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, but listen, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This month invites us to lots of desires of the flesh. This month involves us, uh, invites us to fall in line with everybody else and to do what everybody else does. But this tells us to put on the clothes of Christ, clothe yourself with Jesus. And Jesus was unhurried; he wasn't worried. Imagine if December was like that for you. Who would be excited about a month that was unhurried and not worried? I think all of us. That's what the scriptures invite us to do too, to live as awake people filled with hope and not despair. And it it goes on to tell us some harsh things there about how to live in the light of Christ, not to give over to the things that culturally are trying to entice us, but to put on the clothing of Christ in a way that honors Jesus and groaning with anticipation and the future hope of Jesus, uh, but filled with hope and joy today. See, we, you might not know this, we don't have to live as people who have no hope, do we? See, the resurrection happened then, and it's happening now. That cycle of life, death, burial, and resurrection is still happening. And here's the thing we get to live as people who live under the kingship of the King of Kings, who will have the last word. Let me tell you what that last word is. This is from Isaiah. This is the third reading this weekend Isaiah chapter 2. It's an absolutely beautiful passage. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk, what? In the light of the Lord. That's a pretty beautiful picture of the end of the world. You see, because we can trust that whenever it is, I don't know when it is that Jesus comes back but I can long for it, but because I know that his plan is righteous and holy and good, and I look at the peace that this verse promises us, I get excited about that and go, wait a second. If the king of kings is promising this and he's got this under control, maybe I don't have to live anxious today for what's going to happen tomorrow because he is the God of this world. He owns this world. He has all authority and all power and all all dominion over the forces of darkness. And Jesus, the light of Christ, is pushing back the darkness. So we don't have to live in a month filled with darkness because we live under the sonship of the king of kings. Who's with me? Paul writes in his uh, scripture from his letter to uh, the Romans, and he says this, the night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Listen, this month you have to make a conscious decision. You can go on about your business and be a zombie just going through the month of December and then go, well, that was crazy, wasn't it? You can do that if we don't stop and make a conscious decision to stay awake, mindful of the presence of Christ in every situation we're in, Macy's and Walmart and Amazon's Cyber Monday, and all of those things will keep us mindlessly just walking through Christmas season. So I don't wanna just say all that and then say, have a good day. I wanna give you a couple of practical things you can do to be mindful and awake, filled with hope and joy in this season. Here's the first one. Engage in a contemplative practice for this whole month. A contemplative practice uh, is just a type of practice where you just slow down and you just really try to connect with the presence of Christ. When Advent began in the fourth century, uh, it was kind of like what our, our Lent is. It's a time of feasting and, or fasting and repentance. And um, the idea had to do with reflecting on the first incarnation of Christ and the second coming of Christ, but slowing ourselves down and cultivating a mindfulness about Jesus and what Jesus is up to in this moment, being watchful and waiting for him. And it might be hard today to imagine fasting in the month of December. Some of us are overzealous. I'm really going to connect with God. I'm going to fast. This is the worst possible month for you to choose to fast. But it could be helpful to, to put some kind of practice in place that helps you not jump from Thanksgiving to Christmas too quickly. I'm just talking about practices you've heard us talk lots about before, like prayer, meditating on Scripture, on solitude, getting away and getting quiet. Those sorts of things they help us to reframe our vision. Those help us escape our pre-written patterns of busyness in this season. They help us to stay present to the invisible. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Mary was pregnant and Jesus was in the womb, he was he was present, but he was invisible. The whole month of December. Jesus is in the womb. He's coming, but he's not quite there, but he's present. He's with us in the moment. And those sort of practices call us to look beyond what we see and reflect on God showing up in everyday circumstances. And I'm not asking you, just to be really clear, I'm not asking you to become a monk. Uh, You don't have to buy monk clothes and put 14 things in place. I'm saying pick one thing that you can practice the next four weeks. Maybe it's, I'm gonna try journaling three times a week. Maybe it's sitting in silence for 15 minutes a day. Maybe it's reading scripture in the middle of your day, or maybe it's reading the lectionary readings for each day of the week. But I want to ask you just to pause for just a moment and ask yourself this question. What is one practice you can embrace in this season to disrupt your typical pattern and walk more closely with Jesus? That's why we meet. That's why we have church. Not just so you can hear me talk, but so that you can practice living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. The second thing, uh, practice gratitude. You know, Facebook is a real pain sometimes. I hate scrolling through the feed because people say some nasty things to each other and they fight and they say things they would never say in person to one another. But there's one day a year where I like looking at Facebook and it's Thanksgiving because people share what they're thankful for, most people. And it's nice to see that. Thanksgiving is just being aware of the things that God has done, and just expressing gratitude, just expressing gratitude for all that God has done to remember the things in the day. At the end of your day, just going, Lord, thank you for this and this and this, or the beginning of the day, Lord, thank you for seeing me through to another day. That really um, is the heart of the gospel, and it reflects much on our ability to sit in the love of God, filled with gratitude, and it can be a habit that, that starts reframing each moment so, so we can escape those patterns of busyness and self-concern and, and fear. And when we get to the place where we start wanting to complain about overcrowded airport terminals or the DMV line or uh, you know, the shopping aisle that I always go to that seems like it's gonna be the quickest but it's always the longest because of coupons and other things and all that sort of stuff. But what if in those moments we practiced gratitude? What if instead of just venting, to our friends? What if we practiced gratitude? What if in the moments where we're forced to wait for the cars who don't know how to drive on snow, that we just give thanks? God, thank you that I have a warm vehicle to drive. Thank you for that person, whatever it might be. And when we start practicing gratitude, it jerks us back to this reality that everything we have is a gift and that our God delights in in giving us experiences with nature and relationships and blessing us with small and big things, but most importantly, with his presence. So I want to encourage you to set up a pattern for yourself to give thanks. You might want to set a reminder on your phone. Just go into your reminders app of whatever you have and say, every morning at this time and every night at this time, practice gratitude. And just take 30 seconds and get quiet. Say, Daryl, I'm thankful for you. It's been fun to journey with you these last couple of years. Thank God for your family. Thank God for the breath that you breathe, for the, the food that you have, the, the warmth over your, your head, whatever, the roof over your head, all those sort of things. Maybe you write the word thanks on a napkin and you tape it to the dashboard of your car, hopefully not over the speed limit, but over the tachometer. <laughs> things like that to remind you to be grateful and thankful. Maybe you start a habit with your kids before meals of just saying, oh, what's one thing you're thankful for today? Or maybe you post on Facebook or Instagram and say, today I'm thankful for this. What are you thankful for? And just delight in watching people's responses. Finally, the the third thing, think beyond yourself. You know, we, we spend an extraordinary amount of energy this time of year asking me questions, don't we? Like, what party should I go to? What Family should we spend holidays with? Uh, what do I want for Christmas? What should I give so-and-so? And how, should, how much should I spend on it? And what should I eat? What should I cook? Where should I go? All those sorts of things. But identifying with others and putting yourself and walking with other people helps disrupt that hurried cycle. It helps us to slow down and to meet people where they are. And so maybe you serve dinner at a homeless shelter Maybe you find a family who's gone through the pain of losing a job and is struggling financially. Maybe you adopt them for Christmas. This is why we're doing this right here. Maybe you volunteer with this or with our Christmas marketplace or the the Posada that's coming up. We need volunteers for all of those. Maybe you do those to identify and to serve and to care for other people. Maybe you open up your home to neighbors who just moved across the street from you. Maybe you give someone your old laptop. Maybe you... Listen to Uncle Joe's story at Christmas again, but this time you really listen. Or maybe you just sit with someone and just be present with them. You see, Advent invites us to live in that tension between the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and Jesus returning again. It's that time when he brings true shalom, and and it invites us to live with a conscious awareness of him in this season, no matter what our circumstances are. And three ways that we can do that this month. We can engage in practices that remind us of the presence of God. We can practice gratitude and we can be present with others by thinking beyond ourselves. As we move toward a close, I want you to know that the one who created all things is with you. And if this is a hard season for you, I want you to know I'm really sorry. It's hard for a lot of people. And I want you to know that Jesus is not content to let you languish in your pain forever. That Jesus meets you, that Advent, he is waiting with us, that he is groaning with us, that he is ever-present in our time of need. He meets with us in the good and the bad, and he'll return again. One of the tools that our teams put together to help in this season is to uh, put a, a formation guide on the inside front left cover of the bulletin. And every week we're gonna have this, it's gonna tell you the four passages of the week so that you can chew on those, It's gonna have really helpful questions that you can journal through. You can ask in your small group. You can meet someone for coffee. You can talk about those things. And it has some practices that you can uh, engage in. And my prayer is that God would just be with us in this season. However we find ourselves engaging in it, as it's busy, as it's crazy, that we would somehow be unhurried and would remember that Advent is coming, but Jesus is with us right now. Awake to his presence in ordinary, average moments and knowing that Jesus meets us in every season of our lives the band's gonna just share a really beautiful song uh, and it really embodies the spirit and the heart of Advent so I'm gonna ask you to lean in and
2: pay attention and then we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table together before I sing this I just wanna read some of these lyrics for you so that they don't just fly over the top of your head um Listen to these words. Like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. Oh, how nature acquaints us with the nature of patience. Like a seed in the snow, I've been buried to grow. For your promise is loyal from seed to sequoia. I know that though the winter is long, even richer the harvest it brings. Though the waiting prolongs, even greater the promise for me like a seed. I believe that my season will come. Isn't that beautiful? And then later on in the bridge, it says this, I can see my promise even in the winter, because you're the God of greatness, even in a manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. (laughs) You could have saved in seconds. Instead, you sent a child. God has this way of moving, maybe at a pace, way slower than we would like but that's how seeds grow. So let's listen to the song. The frost on the rose Winter comes for us all Oh, how nature Sweet.